When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we find out why the UK and Ireland are being battered by storms, what happens in the brain at the moment of death, and what the post-pandemic years will mean for mental health. But first, it was on this week in 1953 that the structure of DNA was first discovered by James Watson. Ever since, we've been inching closer to understanding the secrets of life. fossil unearthed on the Isle of Skye is the largest pterosaur ever discovered from the Jurassic period. It's the skeleton of a pterosaur. So one of those pterodactyls, those reptiles that were flying around back when the dinosaurs were living. That's Steve Brissati, Professor of Paleontology at the University of Edinburgh. We discovered the fossil in 2017 on an expedition that we did to the Isle of Skye. It was a University of Edinburgh expedition funded by National Geographic. It's a new species. We call it Yarkskianok. That's a Scottish Gaelic name, and that pays homage to where it was found here in Scotland on the Isle of Skye. Pterosaurs are the largest flying vertebrates and the first ever to take to the skies. With a diet of fish and squid, this species sports large, well-defined teeth and fangs. It's an exquisite skeleton. The bones are preserved in three dimensions. It's 170 million years old, give or take, and it's big. This animal had a wingspan of over 2.5 meters. That is generally the size of the largest birds today. So already, way back in the Jurassic period, these pterosaurs were getting much larger than we used to think. That being said, researchers also discovered that this huge dino wasn't even fully grown, and it still had the capacity to get much larger before it perished. When this animal was soaring over the heads of dinosaurs in the lagoons of ancient sky during the Jurassic period, it was the biggest thing that we know of that had ever flown in the entire history of the Earth. And it's known from a beautiful fossil. This is just a superlative Scottish fossil. Nothing like this has been found here before. It's gorgeously preserved. And we're just very pleased to have uh, such a nice fossil like this from here in Scotland. The pterosaur has now been unveiled at the National Museum of Scotland, where it'll be in the permanent collection. Come rain or shine, the weather's long been the go-to topic of conversation, and these past few weeks have been no exception. Sweeping through Ireland and the UK, Dudley, Eunice and Franklin have quickly become household names, and they've got us thinking, what's going on with the weather these days? To find out, we caught up with Sue Gray, a professor in the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading. So the reason that they form is because we have um, a strong um, jet stream at about... Um, seven to nine miles up in the atmosphere, so quite high up in the atmosphere, um, and that helps to drive the formation of these storms. The, the jet stream is stronger in the winter months than in the summer months, so that's why we, we tend to get them in the winter. 
Um, we also see quite often what we call clustering of storms, which is where we get one storm after the other, as we've had in the past week or so. Um, and that's very, very common um, over our part of the world, so the, the eastern side of the, the North Atlantic. Um, and it occurs partly because when you've got a strong jet stream, you've got um, a driving force to develop a series of storms in a, in a sequence, um, and they, of course, um, get directed towards Europe. With red warnings from the Met Office, these recent storms seem to have been particularly severe. Why is that? It's not that we don't get these storms occasionally, they, they do come along. Of course, we tend to remember the ones that cause the most impact. Um, and that could be because they're particularly strong, but it could also be in terms of where they, they track. And of course, Eunice, it tracked over southern England, tracked over London. And so, of course, you know, we, we tend to remember storms that have affected us. When they issue a warning, they take into account two things. The first is the likelihood. So um, how certain they are that it's going to happen. The second thing they take into account is the impact if that event occurs. So if it's going to go over a very populated area, then it's likely to have more impact. It's also likely to have more impact uh, if it's occurring over southern England than if it's occurring over, over northern Scotland. So that is also taken into consideration exactly where you might make the decision between, say, um, a yellow or an amber or a red warning will depend a little bit on where you are in the UK. Eunice and her pals have already caused some considerable damage. Can we expect more of this type of weather in years to come? This is the question that, that people want answering, of course. I think at the moment, given the data we've got, there's not a clear signal. As we go further ahead, you, you know, you obviously you use climate models to, to look into this. Um, and the latest sort of, you know, the latest sort of big international assessment of the, of the state of the science is suggesting that there's some confidence that as we go towards the end of this century that we've got more storms likely to occur over northern and western Europe. Um, and there's some indication that we might get more of this, this clustering of storms, so one, one storm after the other. So there is some evidence that storms might become more severe, These particularly these sort of windstorm-like storms where we get strong winds. And if there's quite strong evidence that we're going to get more heavy precipitation associated with storms when they occur. So, yes, there is some confidence that storms will become more impactful as we go forward in time. Of course, whether or not we see those impacts depends on exactly where the storms go. You know, if they, if they pass north of Scotland, we won't see them in the UK. And that is a big part of the uncertainty. Still to come on the Sunday 7, what happens in the brain at the moment of death and the long-term impact of COVID-19 on mental health? goes through a person's mind the moment they die? Well, according to scientists in the US, our lives really do flash before our eyes in those final moments. This comes after neuroscientists accidentally made the first ever recording of a dying brain. Analysis of the brainwave suggests that in our final moments we might relive some of our best memories. The study was conducted by a team of scientists from around the world, including members of the neurosurgery department at the University of British Columbia, where Dr. Ajmal Zema was working at the time. He spoke to the BBC about the experience and how this discovery came to be. This was actually totally by chance. We did not plan to do this experiment or record these signals. 
we had a patient who suffered what we call a subdural hematoma, so a bleed between the skull and the skin of the brain. So we operated on this patient, removed the bleed, and three days, he was doing quite well. Three days afterwards, he started having seizures. So we went and applied an EEG, an electroencephalogram, to record the brain activity to treat this patient's seizures. While this was attached, the patient suffered a cardiac arrest and died. So we were in the situation where we had a recording from alive to death that we then went on and analyzed. And what did it show? Something very surprising. In a normal human being, when we do high cognitive tasks like concentrating, dreaming, meditating, reconning memories, we have brain waves in certain patterns and certain frequencies that go up or down and they modulate their activities to let us experience those things. So what we observe is the similar patterns that occur in the brain when you do these tasks like dreaming, memory recall, or meditation, for example, these exact same patterns occur just before the patient died. And more surprisingly so, for the first 15 seconds after the blood supply to the brain was stopped, so after the heart stopped beating blood to the brain, we see a change in these oscillations as well. So what does that mean? Could the patient have been seeing something as they were dying? I would divide it in three ways. One is the pure scientific interpretation of the data, the metaphysical and philosophical interpretation of the data, and the spiritual interpretation. The only thing I can say for certain is there is a correlation of these patterns of oscillations happening just before we die and after we die that are similar to the ones that occur during high cognitive tasks. There's colleagues of ours who did a study in rats where they experimentally induced cardiac arrest and they see very similar responses to what we see in the human. In the philosophical side, this could possibly be a last recall of memories that we've experienced in life and they replay through our brain in the last seconds before we die and even to what is determined death when do we die is it when the heart stops is it after the heart stops that is also a medical question that we may have opened the door for discussion on that end to when do you start with organ donation do you do that when the heart stops beating or do you do that maybe 15 seconds after that because the patient is still having replay? We don't know. On the spiritual side, if we get some insights and I can tell my patient that perhaps their loved one is there and they're replaying some of the nicest memories just before they're passing away, maybe that gives them some strength and some kind of warmth in that moment. This week, all remaining legal COVID restrictions have been removed in England nearly two years after they were introduced. At this time, over 18 million people in the UK have tested positive for the virus since the start of the pandemic. While many of these people recovered and are leading normal, healthy lives, a new study from the United States has found that COVID survivors have increased risks of mental health disorders. Dr. Ziad Al-Ali from the VA St. Louis Healthcare System was the lead researcher, and he explained to Bloomberg the long-term health and societal impact this could have. 
Specifically, the mental health disorders we see across the board, anxiety, depression, we see sleep problem, neuro neurocognitive decline, opioid use disorders. It's, it's really across the board. Even people who did not get hospitalized are also exhibiting increased risk of mental health disorders. So that, that's really also important because that's really the majority of people with COVID-19 in, in, in the US, in Australia, in the UK, globally. So what are the policy implications? What needs to be done to support the thousands of people who are likely to be affected? And we definitely need to pay attention to the acute effects of COVID. But really, we also need to start shifting our framework a little bit of mind and, and, and prepare for the aftermath of all of this. The virus that's causing this pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, is actually now capable of producing long-term consequences on a scale that we have never seen before in mental health disorders and also other disorders. And we've seen cardiovascular disease and, and other disorders. It produces a myriad abnormalities that will stick with people for a lifetime and have really long-term ramifications on their ability to rejoin the workforce, be able to contribute to economy and, and their quality of life, and also arguably life expectancy. According to Zayad, we need to pay more attention to these conditions before it's too late. Maybe, you know, COVID will become endemic, but there are millions of people around the world with mental health problems, with heart problems, with kidney problems. You know, as a, as a result of COVID, those people will need care for decades. And I think that uh, public health authorities and governments and health systems around the world should really start paying attention before it's too late to the aftermath of the pandemic, to the long-term consequences that the pandemic is, is, is causing. Still to come on the Sunday 7, how one company's getting old tyres back on the road and how the brain perceives singing right after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. First time, MIT neuroscientists have identified a population of neurons in the human brain that selectively lights up when we hear singing, but not other types of music. Led by Dr. Samuel Normal Hagner, the team of scientists made their discovery by recording electrical activity in the brain of 15 participants, each of whom had electrodes inserted inside their skulls to monitor epileptic seizures before undergoing surgery. These patients, while they were in the hospital, they listen to a variety of sounds like you might hear in your daily life. So, you know, the sound of a dog barking, someone tapping their finger, as well as um, a variety of different types of music and speech. What we found when we applied this method to the, these data were that we could replicate a lot of prior findings. So we could, for example, we found that there was evidence that there are distinct regions of the auditory cortex that respond selectively to speech and music. But then we also found this new response pattern that surprised us. And this was a response that reflected selectivity for just music that contained singing 
and produces a weak response for both uh, instrumental music that lacks vocals um, as well as speech, suggesting that there's something like a neural population in the auditory cortex of the human brain that responds selectively to singing and is specifically involved in the analysis of song. As strange as this finding is, researchers are still not 100% sure why certain neurons respond to singing this way. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a puzzle. Um, I mean, so one kind of obvious fact about singing is that it's it's very central to most of the music that most people listen to. So, you know, most pop music um, contains vocals and the vocals are typically a fairly important part of the music. They often contain the main melodic line and thus draw people's attention to that stimulus. So, you know, it's possible that we just have a lot of exposure and interest and attention that's been devoted to this type of stimulus, which is perhaps related to the fact that we observe this type of selectivity. Um, it's also, of course, the case that um, singing is a little bit special in that many people think that singing played some role in the evolution of music. And it's, you know, a type of music that doesn't require any technology. You know, it doesn't require someone to be able to create an instrument and thus it's something that people can do more naturally. So it's possible that there's some evolutionary role as well. This is just the first step in this field of research. Samuel and his team are keen to keep exploring. There are lots of open questions about the kind of origins of this type of selectivity, um, as well as kind of exactly what features uh, song selectivity reflects. Um, we're also uh, in my lab very interested in understanding kind of the, the, the time scales that are being analyzed by these different neural populations. So for example, um, you know, if a neuron responds to 10 milliseconds of sound or 100 milliseconds or a second or two seconds, that implies something very different about what's being coded and what's being represented. For example, I mean, think about speech as a kind of simpler case. You know, if a neuron was, say, analyzing 100 milliseconds, then it might be responding to a phoneme or a short syllable. While if it's analyzing two seconds, that might suggest it's analyzing a whole sentence. And the same is true for music. You know, if a neuron's analyzing 100 or 200 milliseconds, it might be responding to a note, or if it's analyzing two seconds, it might be analyzing a melody, for example. Work's now underway to understand what it is about singing that these areas of the brain are responding to, whilst they also hope to explore how this selectively arose during development or evolution in the first place. They say one man's trash is another man's treasure, and in Zambia, one clever company is turning piles of old tyres into liquid gold. Malenga Malenga, chief executive of the Central African Renewable Energy Corporation, says they're cleaning up the environment by converting waste into energy. These old tyres are getting back on the road in the form of fuel. And uh, the positive contribution is that the gas that we are producing, the petrol that we are producing, the diesel that we are producing is of a much, much lower cost or the production cost is so much lower than the normal diesel and petrol that you're getting from your filling stations. He says they're currently processing one and a half tons of tyre waste, which also includes plastic containers to make six to seven hundred litres of diesel and gasoline per day. Now, that's hardly enough to make a dent in Zambia's mountains of rubbish or its $1.5 billion annual fuel import bill, but energy analyst Johnson Chikwanda says any initiative that reduces import dependence ought to be supported. It is lessening the burden on looking for forex, because if you are going to be looking for $1.4 billion every year, then you can understand why the Zambian kwasha is constantly under pressure. 
Malenga's company is now seeking investment of $60 million to raise output to 400 tonnes of diesel, 125 tonnes of petrol and 30 tonnes of liquefied petroleum gas, all at half the cost of imported fuel. However, just how green is a project like this? The process involves burning waste rubber and plastic and mixing it with a catalyst. From a climate change perspective, this takes a lot of energy and the product still releases CO2 when burned. That being said, waste management remains a problem in Zambia and as people still continue to use fuel, its supporters say this is better that it comes from recycled waste. They might be smarter than we think, and that could make getting rid of them and the diseases they carry even more difficult, according to new research. Spreading diseases such as dengue, Zika and West Nile fever, mosquitoes are a troublesome insect. Scientists from Keele University say that the female mosquitoes they studied learned to avoid pesticides after a single non-lethal exposure. As a result, mosses that were previously exposed may seek out safer food sources and resting sites. Other students found that the mosquitoes could associate experiences with different pattern visual cues or smells. As mosquitoes become more and more resistant to pesticides, this all means that new solutions will be needed to better control their pesky populations. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.